Brittany Chapman Nash is historian of Church History Library of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She received a BA in Humanities from Brigham University and an MA in Victorian Studies from the University of, how do you pronounce that to be sure? Leicester. Okay, I would have pronounced it wrong. She specializes in 19th century Mormon women's history and is co-editor with Richard E. Turley Jr. of the seven-volume Women of Faith in the Latter-day Saints series, which features the life writings of Latter-day Saint women. She serves on the executive committee of the Mormon Women's History Initiative team, and she and her husband, Peter Nash, recently married husband, Peter Nash, live in Salt Lake City. So with that, let's welcome Brittany Chapman Nash. It is wonderful to be with you today and to see you out there in the audience um, and to speak with you about one of my favorite topics, and that is plural marriage. <laughs> it's true. I took my first deep dive into the pool of polygamy research while collecting information about 19th century Mormon women's activist Ruth May Fox. I was working on my master's thesis and recognized it was essential to tackle the topic to understand the world she lived in. What I found was uncomfortable. I wanted history to be neat and tidy, and instead, history was messy and inconsistent and in some ways troubling. I was raised LDS and I lived where there were relatively few Mormons. and. Once people found out I was LDS, they would often ask about polygamy. My ingrained response was to quickly emphasize that we no longer practiced it. And for me, it was a piece of our past to reject and even feel a little ashamed or embarrassed about. It was not modern Mormon, Mormonism, and that was enough for me. I did not have an inclination to study church history until it became necessary for my studies. And I was introduced to a rich and incredible world um, once I dove in of Mormon women's history that I had no idea existed. I have had glimpses into the deep sisterhood they shared, united by faith through persecution, a unity in large part achieved due to their participation in and defense of polygamy. I have since come to view plural marriage as a part of the Latter-day Saint history to unapologetically own and to hold as one of the most valuable testaments of, of faith in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Theologians and historians have studied the nooks and crannies of Mormon polygamy for over 100 years producing unnumbered works addressing aspects of the practice. Writers and readers are motivated to return to the topic again and again, wanting answers to potentially unanswerable unanswerable questions, like what motivated men and women to enter polygamy? Were their experiences negative or positive? Was it divinely inspired practice or merely a man-made excuse to fill base human passions? Were women really happy in plural marriage? What percentage of Mormons actually practiced polygamy and so forth? These questions are complex and not one answer will satisfy all questions adequately. Experiences in plural marriage can vary as widely as those in monogamous marriage. 
It too was colored by human strengths and frailties, successes and seeming failures, joy and heartbreak. Creating blanket statements about polygamy cannot apply any more than saying all monogamous marriages were happy and all plural marriages were sad. Nor can we say that every woman in a monogamous marriage had greater chance for happiness and marital satisfaction than women in polygamous marriages. Nor can we suppose that all women felt more or less loved when sharing a husband versus being his sole companion. These questions are as individual as there are people. That being said, there are similarities and patterns researchers can track and careful evaluations and interpretations that can be made. There are strategies, tools, and resources that can help enrich our understanding of polygamy. I suggest these four puzzle pieces as essential building blocks for creating a more complete picture of 19th century plural marriage. There are certainly more puzzle pieces that could be added, but in my mind, the union of these four give a strong foundation to build upon. For one person, a single puzzle piece may be enough to satisfy an, inqu an inquiring mind. However, a person cannot look at just one puzzle piece and think she sees the whole picture. All can benefit from having these pieces together. These four puzzle pieces have helped me to understand polygamy more fully as I've learned about it and to see it more clearly. They are theology, accurate historical sources, historical context, ex and experiences of those who practiced pl plural marriage. So the first piece, theology. And you'll note that in each uh, puzzle piece I talk about, there will be an actual puzzle piece in one of the corners of the PowerPoint. So as we're going through, try and uh, discern what, what the, um, the puzzle pieces are actually a picture of. So theology. I will give only a very brief sketch of the theological tenets framing the practice of polygamy. Latter-day Saints believe that God restored the Church of Jesus Christ through the prophet Joseph Smith. He helped to usher in a restoration of all things, including a restoration of the priesthood, which is the proper authority to act in God's name on earth. In biblical times, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and others practiced plural marriage. By revelation, Joseph Smith believed this was an aspect of the gospel that needed to be restored and practiced once more. Church leaders looked into the scriptures for guidance the Book of Mormon identifies one reason God would reinstitute polygamy, and that is to increase the number of children born to raise up seed unto the Lord. In the Bible, Abraham was promised by God to have a progeny as limitless as the sands of the sea, and it was plurality of wives that made the fulfillment of Abraham's promise possible. Many, um, let's see, sorry. We'll go forward one. Many 19th century Latter-day Saints were millennialists, believing Christ's second coming was imminent, even at their door. They looked to the scriptures and saw that in the last days, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Some church members interpreted this to signify that the restoration of plural marriage was required before the second coming of the Lord. This is not an official theological interpretation of the scripture, but it was often quoted by defenders of the faith to substantiate the practice. 
And the scripture also influenced men and women to marry polygamously because in their view, it was the latter days and that scripture was a prophecy of the latter days. During Joseph Smith's lifetime, polygamy was practiced quietly. It became progressively more open once the saints arrived in Utah. Finally, in August 1852, Orson Pratt was instructed to publicly announce that plural marriage was a tenant of the Latter-day Saint faith. In that sermon, he said it was well known to the congregation before me that the Latter-day Saints have embraced the doctrine of plurality of wives. He quickly stressed that plural marriage was, quote, not a doctrine embraced to gratify the carnal lusts and feelings of man, unquote, but instead allowed righteous men and women the opportunity to have, quote, a numerous and faithful posterity to be raised up and taught in the principles of righteousness and truth, unquote. He cited the blessings of Abraham, and by revelation, now was the time to have those blessings restored to members of the church. He concluded his remarks by glorying in God for the sealing power, for the revealed keys to seal all couples, not distinguishing, distinguishing between monogamous and polygamous couples, for eternity, joining them beyond the grave. So our second puzzle piece is sources and accurate historical sources. History is only as good as the sources you use. The best sources tend to be contemporary records. Those records kept at, a at the time an event occurred. Preferably, the records were written by someone closely connected with the event you may be studying. The richest resources are often life writings, which are typically autobiographies and reminiscences, journals and diaries, and letters. Autobiographies and reminiscences are very valuable to draw from, especially if they're the only record you have, of course. But diaries, journals, and letters have special historical power. They were written in the moment that events were occurring. The person you're researching may have been in the midst of a decision, transition, or feeling some fierce emotion, um, and they do not yet know at that point how their story will unfold. They don't know the end of the story, like an autobiographer who already knows how things worked out. Letters are fantastic sources because they give you a one-sided conversation. It's as if you were talking to the person. Uh, memories are fresh, the sequence of events is apparent, and emotions are typically present where they may not always be in diaries or journals. And this gives you special insight into peoples and events. So, you may be sitting in your chairs thinking, great, I have a typed copy of my ancestor's autobiography or journal, I am set. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. Your typescript really is only as good as the transcriptionist, and sometimes there are drastic differences between the typescript and original handwritten sources. And I know this from a lot of personal experience. If you can drill down to the most original source you can get, do that. Keep in mind that the farther you are removed from the original source, the sketchier details become. For example, a daughter reminiscing about her mother is usually a stronger source than a great-granddaughter recalling the stories her grandmother used to tell about the same ancestor. Sources are especially important when looking at polygamy. Access to primary contemporary records 
are your best bet to answering juicy questions people often thirst to find out about polygamy, such as, what happened? How did you feel? Why did you do it? Um, let me give you an example. Before I began researching the life of Ruth May Fox, who happens to be my ancestor, I knew she was the first wife in a polygamous marriage. All I knew about her experience was the vague eavesdropping of family tradition and one single cryptic paragraph that she included in her autobiography. From what I gleaned, Ruth was taken completely by surprise by her husband Jesse's second marriage. And thereafter, I had heard that he abandoned Ruth to live with his second wife, Rose. As I began digging through original records, though, I found both of those suppositions to be completely false. I was able to locate original letters, contemporary city records, newspapers, journals, records from Rose's side of the family, oral histories, and also uh, learn more about the historical context of the time. And that helped illuminate what was really happening. Um, through letters written by Jesse and Rose's own words, I found that Ruth indeed was aware that Jesse was courting a second wife, and she accepted their rela relationship, albeit not with enthusiasm. With these additional sources, I was able to understand the meaning of the cryptic paragraph in Ruth's autobiography. It also became easily apparent that Jesse and Ruth continued to live together after his marriage to Rose. Points of this story were clarified beyond doubt thanks to primary contemporary sources. As an aside, lack of primary contemporary records is probably one of the single reasons that unpacking Nauvoo polygamy is difficult. Contemporary sources detailing polygamy during that time are extremely rare um, because the practice was kept confidential. So people weren't keeping records. Um, most of the sources available are later reminiscences um, when, quote, the end of the story is known and polygamy was more well established. That's the bulk. And Laura Hales will be speaking about Nauvoo polygamy tomorrow and it will be a wonderful opportunity to see how you can piece together a story and interpret circumstances using just a, f a few contemporary sources. Um, so next, another puzzle piece is historical context. So how do we establish the truth of something historically? We know it is critical to have a basic grounding in theology find strong contemporary sources, and we also know that the farther sources are removed from the time an event occurred, typically the weaker and more dubious the stories become. The third puzzle piece is historical context. We have to put on a different set of glasses when looking at history. For example, were the men in this picture sinners or saints? It depends who you asked. This is a picture of a group of prisoners in the Utah penitentiary. They were found guilty of practicing polygamy. If you asked a Mormon, he would say these men were heroes, true Latter-day Saints. Prisoners were often heralded as martyrs for their religion, and upon their return home, some of these men may have had parades held in their honor. On the other hand, if you asked a typ typical legislator in Washington, D.C. about these men, 
Chances are he believed that these polygamists belonged in prison for a crime against women. Our forebears, whether Mormons or Gentile legislators, were balancing a set of needs and navigating social mores different from our own. Viewpoints change over time due to imposed circumstances, cultural exposure, economic prosperity, changing morality, advanced knowledge and technology, and basic generational differences. And all of these filters affect how we, view the how we view the past and the present and how we tell their stories. For example, marriage was different in the 19th century than it is today. With our 21st century glasses on, marriage is based on ideals of romantic love. Marrying without romantic attachment seems sad or unfair, and in some cases even impossible. But not all saw it that way in the 19th century. In most parts of the Western world, women had few legal rights and little economic security without a husband. Having a male protector typically gave women and children a more stable life. Adding another dimension, like religious faith, further affected the criteria with which women chose a spouse. That being said, as the 19th century progressed, marrying for love did become more customary, but it was not considered a prerequisite for marriage, as is often the assumption in our worldview. When reading history, it is fantastically illuminating to understand the prevailing cultural ideals. That fact plays an essential role in how members of the church defended and justified polygamy. Plural marriage was officially practiced from the early 1840s until the 1890 Manifesto, a half century spanning nearly the entire spine of the reign of Britain's Queen Victoria, a time distinguished as the Victorian era. Along with frilly dresses, fringy home decor, and Charles Dickens, the Victorian era is noted for its emphasis on piety and morality, religious revival, and distinct social spheres for men and women. It is also noted for having a rather dirty underbelly. The Industrial Revolution, for example, decreased the quality of life for many and was an explosion of what they called social evils, which we'll discuss more about later. In Victorian gender relationships, men ruled the public sphere, where they were employed, politically involved, and held civic and religious leadership positions. They were the providers, protectors, and leaders. The model Victorian woman ruled the domestic sphere of home. She filled her greatest potential in becoming a noble wife and mother, and stood as the moral pillar of society. Women set the standard for virtue and good works in their communities, and she women were placed on a pedestal of purity, including sexual purity. Males and female spheres overlapped through companionate marriage. While their separate spheres were inhabited by model wives and husbands, there was also an ideal husband-wife relationship um, during the Victorian era. Men and women aspired to attain the companionate potential of a loving marriage, believing that the sexes were perfect complements to one another, and because of this, the perfect companion. In the ideal relationship, a husband and wife took refuge in each other as the other's closest advisor and confidant. 
Men were more moral and noble because of women, and women were protected and supported by men. And remember, this is the ideal we're talking about um, as they saw it. These Victorian ideals were completely overthrown by the concept of polygamy. It flew in the face of social roles and marriage expectations. The companionate nature of marriage was shattered by the assumption that men's base desires were motivating them to participate in polygamy, not the desire uh, for the well-being and respectability of their wives, of their wives. Social roles for men and women unraveled as well. People heard tales of plural wives left destitute and men neglecting the economic support of their families. And the men, therefore, were not feeling their social role as providers. The public also envisioned polygamous men as despots and dictators over their families, thus not fulfilling their role as protector. I mentioned earlier that women were held on a pedestal of morality and sexual purity. As such, in the Victorian era, there became a cultural fixation on sexual purity. Respectable women were chaste and reserved sexual relations for monogamous matrimony. Any woman who had sexual relations outside of marriage was considered fallen and was a disgrace to those associated with her. Ironically, however, in tandem with this social emphasis on sexual purity, there was an explosion of prostitution, which was considered one of the great Victorian social evils. Under the prevailing code of womanly respectability and purity, 19th century Mormon women were scorned as prostitutes, adulterers, and concubines. If the women were thus degraded, women who were supposed to set the standard of morality and good works, um, popular culture deduced that Mormons must certainly be in a deplorable, dysfunctional, and immoral group indeed. If women were thus enslaved, there was no hope of the amelioration of the Mormon people. Polygamous Mormons felt a great dichotomy between how they were perceived by popular culture and the reality of their situation. Historian Joan Iverson was keen to observe that Mormons used the same cultural ideals in the Victorian era to defend themselves um, against negative perceptions. They also used the same ideals to measure themselves as respectable men and women. Instead of finding themselves falling short of the Victorian ideal, Mormons found themselves exceeding the ideals in many ways. Women defended plural marriage by saying it allowed all women who desired to reach their full potential and become honored wives and mothers. They felt confident in the goodness of their husbands and took their domestic role seriously. They cited the health and well-being of their children as a manifestation of their domestic happiness. Mormons also believed that polygamy eradicated one of the greatest social evils of their time, prostitution. In fact, in Orson's speech, in Orson Pratt's speech officially announcing plurality of wives in 1852, he addressed the thorn of adultery in modern Babylon and believed polygamy prevented prostitution and adultery, thus further separating Zion from the ways of the world. Women who would otherwise be prostitutes could become honored wives and mothers with legitimate children. 
Additionally, Mormon women felt they filled their role as moral pillar of society and set standards for good works in their communities. Their choices were based on strict religious faith for, for good works, um, and many of their efforts were consecrated to building the kingdom of God and their communities. Utah women were very proud of the advancements for women in Utah. Um, it had comparatively liberal laws, in, in part to allow um, polygamous households to function more smoothly. Unlike other parts of the Western world, women could own property, find gainful employment, divorce easily if unions were unhappy, and vote as early as 1870. Women were also not prevented from attending institutions of higher education. These liberal practices would have surprised those convinced of Mormon women's helpless and hapless condition in Utah. Every woman's story for entering polygamy is different, but there are strands of similarities that motivated women to participate in the practice. Men also have stories that need to be told, but for today's purposes, I will focus on the shared, shared patterns of women's stories. Popular explanations for plural marriage today include, women married in polygamy because their husbands died while crossing the plains, and they had five children to take care of and no spouse. That was the answer I grew up with. That was the explanation. Um, although that may have been true for some women, in large part, I found that women married in polygamy out of deliberate choice, not out of desperation. The majority of Mormon women entered polygamy because of religious conviction. Simply said, if they were not Latter-day Saints, they probably would not have been polygamous. They believed in the divine restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ through Joseph Smith and placed immense faith in the words of the prophets, God's mouthpieces on earth. Those prophets preached polygamy as a divine principle and true Latter-day Saints, quote, accepted it. Many adherents believed that by participating in the sealing ordinance, particularly in that of plural marriage, they could elevate their standing before God in the afterlife. Because of that conviction, Mormon men and women participated in a complex, hotly debated marriage system in the name of faith. Under the umbrella of religious conviction, Latter-day Saints practiced plural marriage because they believed it was a commandment of God as revealed through his prophets. They hoped for blessings in the world to come for themselves and their posterity. They wanted to raise a righteous posterity. They were counseled, in some cases, to participate in polygamy by church leaders, and they were converted to do so by scriptural and prophetic evidence. So those seem to be kind of the main clusters that I found. Um, again, in my experience reading the stories of women who practiced polygamy, almost all include some element of testimony affirming that they believed the practice was of God and was a divine principle, even if they eventually discontinued the practice or even left the church entirely. I selected several stories to illustrate women entering polygamy primarily because of their conviction that plural marriage was a commandment of God, but could have chosen many more. This is Sarah Barnes Layton, who was converted to the gospel as a young woman and was baptized in England in 1842. 
When the opportunity came for Sarah to marry a polygamist, she reflected, quote, I realized I had covenanted to serve the Lord at baptism, and I could not deny that one of his orders was for us to obey, it was to obey if we would secure the highest degree of glory. The struggle to decide whether or not to enter that order of marriage caused me to lose many nights sleep and caused me to utter many a fervent prayer to the Lord that he would guide me. I had believed the principle to be true for a long time and had heard one of the apostles of this dispensation declare that the Lord had given revelation telling the people that they were to enter into that principle if they would have the highest degree of glory. I had covenanted to serve the Lord. I had obeyed the first principles of the gospel and in that I was told that I must not stand still but must go on. I told my Heavenly Father that if, if he would give me strength, I would obey this principle and would do my best in trying to live up to it. Sarah chose to become a plural wife in 1852. In her old age, she wrote in her autobiography, I believed that I did right then and think so till this day, for the principle is true, but there are many hills to climb along that road, and I have climbed a few, but am satisfied. Twenty years after Sarah Barnes married for the sake of religious faith, a Presbyterian named Elizabeth Kane spent several months in Utah with her husband, Colonel Thomas Kane. Although not LDS, Colonel Kane was beloved by Utahns for his fair representation of Mormons in the national legislature. He and Elizabeth were warmly welcomed into Mormon society, and as Elizabeth traveled through Utah, she was let into the hearts and homes of polygamous women and made a careful record of her um, experiences and discussions with them. In their discussions about polygamy, Elizabeth noted the same phenomenon. Many plural wives dutifully chose marriage partners in anticipation of future eternal blessings. For example, Elizabeth visited an anonymous, quote, lovely looking woman, unquote, um, who said laughingly, Oh, Mrs. Kane, don't you ever give consent to have your husband uh, take another wife. It's a perfect pleasure to see one woman as happy as you are, unquote. Upon Elizabeth's second visit, the lovely plural wife wished to explain her previous remark. She said, she, uh, quote, she had not been envious. She was perfectly satisfied with her condition as a plural wife and thought her husband the best man on the whole earth. She admitted that if she had married the young man whom she had once loved in the States, and she had been henceforward his one darling wife, that her earthly felicity may have been greater. But he was poor, they were very young, and when she joined the Saints, he parted from her. And he turned out badly, so that she might have been very wretched." Unquote. Instead, our lovely plural wife married in polygamy to to quote her words, receive the highest elevation in the next world. Elizabeth replied to this speech by saying, if I could obtain the very lowest place in heaven, could gain admission there at all, in fact, I would be more than content and would not wish to gain a higher place by losing my undivided ownership of a husband here. The lovely looking woman, content with her loft, Lot merely laughed merrily. Her choice to marry in polygamy was deliberate. It gave her the freedom and satisfaction she desired to achieve her ultimate aim, 
which was, the, was eternal reward through the sealing ordinance. As a bookend to the religious conviction motivating women to enter polygamy, it was equally jarring when the 1890 manifesto announced the discontinuation of the practice. Lorena Washburn Larson married Brent Larson in 1880 and lived with his first wife for the first seven years of their marriage. In all that time, wrote Lorena, we never quarreled, not once, but I cannot say that we didn't sometimes feel like it. But we had gone into that order of marriage because we fully believed God had commanded it. And while we had human nature to contend with, we worked and prayed for strength to overcome selfishness and greed and to live on a higher plane, learn to love each other, or there would never be happiness in that order of marriage. She crossed that out and then wrote Our Hearts and Homes. In 1887, the legal noose tightened around polygamists and Lorena moved from home to home with her children to help protect her husband from legal prosecution and imprisonment. And then the 1890 manifesto was announced. At the time, Lorena was traveling with her husband to yet another home for her family. When she heard the news, she recalled, my husband came to our tent and told me about it and my feelings were past description. I had gone into that order of marriage solely because I believed God had commanded his people to do so, and it had been such a sacrifice to enter it and live it as I thought God wanted me to do. And as I thought about it, it seemed impossible that the Lord would go back on a principle which had caused so much sacrifice, heartache, and trial before one could conquer one's carnal self and live on that higher plane and love one's neighbor as oneself. My husband walked out without saying a word, and as he walked away, I thought, oh yes, it's easy for you. You can go home to your other family and be happy with her, while I must be like Hagar, sent away. My anguish was inexpre inexpressible, and a dense darkness took hold of my mind. I thought that if the Lord and the church authorities had gone back on that principle, there was nothing to any part of the gospel. I fancied I could see myself and my children and many other splendid women and their families turned adrift. And our only purpose in entering it had been to more fully serve the Lord. I sank down on our bedding and wished in my anguish that the earth would open and take me and my children in it. The darkness seemed impenetrable. All at once, I heard a voice and felt a most powerful presence. The voice said, why, this is no more unreasonable than the requirement the Lord made of Abraham when, you commanded him to, when he commanded him to offer up his son Isaac. And when the Lord sees that you are willing to obey in all things, the trial shall be removed. There was a light whose brightness cannot be described, which filled my soul, and I was so filled with joy, peace, and happiness that I felt that no matter whatever should come to me in all my future life, I could never feel sad again. If the people of the whole world had been gathered trying to comfort me, um, gathered together trying with all their power to comfort me, they could not compare with the powerful unseen presence which came to me on that occasion. And as soon as my husband came back, I told him what a glorious presence had been there and what I had heard. He said, I knew that I could not say a word to comfort you, so I went to a patch of willows and asked the Lord to send a comforter.
Before the cessation of plural marriage in 1890, members of the church were sometimes pricked by their own spiritual guidance to practice polygamy. When done in proper order, permission was obtained from the first wife, and then men approached church leaders for permission to take another wife. In some cases, however, people were approached by church leaders and asked to participate in the practice. If you went back in time and visited wealthy LDS men, general authorities, and 19th century leaders of wards and stakes, you would find that many had something in common. They were polygamous. Men who were financially stable and held responsible church leadership positions, such as those in bishoprics and stake presidencies, were often encouraged or counseled to take a plural wife to set an example for their congregations. Mar Margaret McNeil Ballard wrote, My husband, being a bishop, had been counseled by the authorities to set the example of obedience by entering into this law of polygamy. The compliance of this was a greater trial to my husband than it was to me. He would say, Margaret, you are the only woman in the world I ever want. While this was a trial for both of us, we knew that the Lord expected us to be obedient in this law, as in all laws, as revealed in these latter days. After many weeks of pondering and praying for guidance, I persuaded my husband to enter into this law and suggested to him my sister, Emily three years younger than myself, as his second wife. They decided to be married in the endowment house. Henry asked me to go with them on this trip. I made a protest as I was in a delicate condition, meaning she was pregnant. Henry was grieved and said to me, Margaret, unless you go with me and give your consent in this marriage and stand as a witness, I will not go. I went and gave my consent and blessing to the union. Although I loved my sister dearly, and we knew it was a commandment of God that we should live in celestial marriage, it was a great trial and sacrifice to me. But the Lord blessed and comforted me, and we lived happily in this principle of the gospel. Another motivation spurring plural marriage was the opportunity to raise a numerous righteous posterity. Women who otherwise would not have had opportunity to marry a devoted Latter-day Saint man, for example, or a childless man, uh, would have had the opportunity to raise children unto the Lord. Elizabeth Graham MacDonald felt passionately about this concept, saying, quote, a reason why a plurality of wives is given to worthy men is to multiply and replenish the earth, and for the exaltation of all who enter into this holy order, that they may bear the souls of men then why should I, or any other woman in the church, withhold from them this privilege because of the feelings of our weak nature? Um, the decision to marry polygamously often occurred after having been in a monogamous marriage for some time. For many, especially adult converts, polygyny was not part of their original domestic plan. Others, however, took a proactive approach. From as early as the 1840s, youth deliberately chose, even before marriage, that they wanted plural families. For example, in the 1840s, Sarah Ballard, who I mentioned earlier, and her friend Sarah Martin promised one another that they would marry the same man, and they did. In the 1850s, sisters, um, Sarah, Mariah, and Amanda Mosley, agreed to share with e each other their lot in marriage and were married to Angus Cannon the same day. 
Two generations later, in the 1880s, young people were still making deliberate plans for plural marriage. Ellen Larson and Silas Smith began courting one another in Snowflake, Arizona. As their courtship developed, Silas wrote that they often knelt in prayer, asking our Heavenly Father to protect and guide us. We talked of the future and exchanged ideas. We both agreed that someday we would live the principle of polygamy. Ellen's family moved to Pima, Arizona not long after she and Silas vowed to marry. They corresponded with one another, and one day Silas wrote to Ellen of his admiration for a splendid young lady, Maria Elizabeth Bushman. Ellen responded to his letter tersely. I have been thinking seriously about this matter of you taking a second wife, she said, and if you are determined to do so, I must ask you to excuse and relieve me now from going any further. Silas then recorded, Well, I was sick and heartbroken. Alone I pondered and visited the little cedar trees, and I poured out my soul in prayer. I really felt like saying, Ellen, I will do anything or go anywhere for you. But my letter read thus, Ellen, your letter breaks my heart. We have well understood this matter and have been in agreement in contemplating and planning a plural family. It is my purpose to continue in that determination, come what will. Sooner than anticipated, an answer came, a short note with this message. Oh, Silas, I love you. Forgive me. I wanted to try, to try you to see if you would give up a principle for a poor, simple girl like me. I would not have wanted you had you not proved to me that you are a man the man I want my husband to be. I love you more than ever, your Ellen. The load was lifted at the little tree I expressed my thankfulness, although Satan, although Satan attempted to create anger for being played with, I finally wrote to her saying, all is well, may God grant us courage to proceed. And that's a picture of Ellen and Mariah with their families several years later. In addition to marrying out of a sense of religious duty or of hopes of elevated celestial glory, many polygamous couples also married for love. As we discussed earlier, the ideal Victorian marriage was companionate, one of mutual love and attraction. And polygamous couples, particularly polygamous wives, yearned for the emotional and romantic intimacy with their husbands. Even our lovely-looking woman, interviewed by Elizabeth Kane, owned that her earthly felicity, if not heavenly, might have been greater if she had married for love. Some couples um, were able to achieve an, emo an emotional intimacy. Others who married for love did not receive the exclusivity they hoped. Ida Hunt was one such woman. She was in love with her prospective husband, David Udall. His first wife gave a reluctant blessing for them to marry. And on May 25th, 1882, Ida gushed in her journal, I was sealed for time and all eternity to David King Udall, the only man on earth to whose care I would freely and gladly entrust my future for better, for worse. May heaven help me to keep the vows I have made sacred and pure and may the deep unchangeable love which I feel for my husband today increase with every coming year helping me to prove worthy of the love and confidence which he imposes in me. However, tension with David's first wife and Ida's need to go into hiding puts strain on their marriage. 
Um, although in later years she continued to find joy in her family, um, she was not able to spend the time with David that she may have hoped for and um, largely provided for herself, at least according to the re records that I've been able to find um, over the years of their marriage. Um, ambitious Martha Hughes married Angus Cannon as his fourth wife. She too needed to hide on the underground and sought refuge in England. She left behind letters to a friend in which she expressed, I have linked my fate with one that I love, one who seems all but perfection in my eyes. After her return from England, she became disillusioned over time as she was unable to have the focused affection from her husband that she craved. He had married two additional wives after Martha, so a total of six demanded his attention. She wrote to her friend, my anticipations of happy associations with loved ones after my long exile were altogether overdrawn. Look long and wisely before you choose a life companion, for tis deathly martyrdom to be linked to one who understands you not and appreciates you less. Julina Lamson Smith, the second wife of President Joseph F. Smith, took joy in the companionship she felt with her husband, sister wives, and their mutual children. Um, so some were able to feel the emotional nurturing that they, they craved in a polygamous family. Um, she described her family as a triangle of happiness with her husband acting as, quote, the center controlling bond of love. Joseph wrote to his wives that my family, my beloved companions, and our little ones, one and all, form the center of attractions for me on this earth. Anne Agatha Walker Pratt described her husband, Parley P. Pratt, as, quote, a very fine man, a true and loving husband always. Passionate love letters remain between Parley and Agatha, um, which are passionate, and I will leave the contents to your imagination. But there was love there. And apparently he had a singular ability to make each of his wives feel, in their words, beloved of his bosom. In short, it was possible for a husband to have, in short, was it possible for a husband to have several wives and love each one? Elizabeth Kane, our observant Gentile, was surprised to find that indeed she observed romantic love in the homes she visited. Many times she came across a particularly loving husband and Cain would exult, here at last is one man high in Mormon esteem who is a monogamist. And then she would be dumbfounded to find that there were perhaps two other wives um, to whom he showed equal affection. After observing that question, historian Claudia Bushman concluded, if a parent might love several children individually with a great love, perhaps a husband might also love and value several wives as individuals. To sum up, looking at theology, sources, context, and experiences has led me to conclude that some plural marriages were better than others. Polygamy often produced unique challenges that brought personal pain. People had various coping mechanisms for meeting those challenges and that pain. Some good, some not so good. Some did not adjust well and lived in discord, and others eventually sought divorce. Many women did adjust and found happiness in that order. It is quite incredible to me that despite its personal challenges, 
many women lived faithfully in the practice and allowed it to, quote, burn out their jealousies, unquote, finding heavenly and earthly satisfaction in the principle, as well as love and companionship. My understanding and reconciliation with polygamy transformed not as I learned about it in academic books or articles, although those are extremely important to get a, uh, for a well-rounded grasp and understanding. Um, it was when I began learning about the experience of women who actually lived in polygamy that I felt I finally could get a glimpse of what it was like. And it was in learning about their stories that real admiration for them came. What united them all, um, both those women with positive and negative experiences, was their testimony at one point of the truthfulness of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The history of polygamy in the church is not something to dismiss or quickly define only by its disconnect to the present. For example, um, when I, as a growing up, when I was quick to say it was something we no longer did and let that be the end of the conversation. Um, instead, I believe it is a legacy of faith to honor and acknowledge a history to gain great strength from, a foundation of sacrifice to celebrate, and a bright testimony born in the lives of those who practice plural marriage in the name of religious conviction. The end. Okay, how did the Edmonds-Tucker Law of 1887 change LDS policy concerning polygamous marriage? Um, that was one of the laws that tightened the noose um, around polygamous, and basically it just caused uh, people to go underground more, to hide more. It was more difficult to perform plural marriages during that time, so um, that's when you get stories of people going in the night to the endowment house and, and being sealed and that. that um, so LDS policy at that time has probably affected more LDS practice than policy. Um, <laughs> let's see. Okay. Um, and one is, are you in favor of polygamy? Um, <laughs> That's a difficult question to answer. Um, I believe that it, that it accomplished a lot of good things. Um, and just out of curiosity, if you are a descendant of a polygamous um, family, would you mind standing up? <laughs> Thank you, that is very impressive. So I think we can all see the fruits of polygamy. So in that way, in, in um, expanding the kingdom, I think it was an important and good thing for the time. <clears throat> was monogamous marriage looked down upon in the LDS community during the practice of polygamy? That's a great question. 
um, and one that I've been curious about. You know, we hear a lot about polygamous wives. What about the monogamous wives? Um, we know from different studies that have been done that the majority of people were not polygamous. Um, some of the most recent figures are um, no more than 25 or 26 percent of people practice. Then at the highest point of, um, of polygamy during the 1850s, it could have been as much as 50 percent, but it decreased after that. Um, I don't know, and I hope someone finds out and writes a really good article about it. Um, to what extent was the selection of another wife guided or selected by the first or earlier wives? Um, so we read a couple things today that there was guidance um, by f uh, first wives at times. Um, they would suggest a sister or some ladies older than them that weren't very attractive or, you know, just <laughs> they, they did have input. Um, but there were also times, like in uh, my ancestor's case, where um, Jesse did not consult with her about who he wanted as a second wife. He chose someone who happened to be um, younger than her and very beautiful. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and this the person also says, there is a very special sisterhood, and I believe that there is, um, between both polygamous wives. Um, there's been accounts where they, um, where polygamous wives have talked about the special unity that they've shared, um, more than sisters, um, because they're united in purpose and in what they believed was a great cause and in helping to raise each other's families. Um, more, okay. Polygamy is a great topic for discussion. We probably won't have a time. Um, how many more questions should I answer? Okay. Did some divorced plural wives remarry? Yes. Um, it was comparatively easy to obtain a divorce in Utah, unlike countries like England where it was expensive and almost impossible. Um, and, and some people joked about how easy it was to also find another husband. So, um, so the, there was uh, flexibility in, in marrying. So divorced wives um, did remarry if they wanted to. Um, <laughs> was the commandment for the practice of polygamy given to the church as a whole or directed toward specific members? That's a good and probably complicated question. Um, we know from the way it was practiced that um, there was some structure to it um, and that men were discouraged from taking plural wives if they could not support them well. Um, and so, uh, and that general authorities were encouraged to practice polygamy. 
Um, but the sense that I have gotten is that it was, oh, I don't know if I, um, I think it was um, given as a whole, as a, as a principle, but um, a mandate whether or not to practice it um, did not ex exist. Um, okay. There's quite a few questions about the FLDS church, and um, I don't know that much about the FLDS and how it, com um, how it compares to 19th century polygamy. Um, but someone said something interesting that may be worth contemplating. Um, they, they observed that perhaps the way we look upon FLDS people is the way that um, other people looked at Mormons in the 19th century. Um, and for me, that's been an interesting thing to think about. Um, and I think that it was just uh, a continuation. Uh, and I, I don't, again, I don't know how, how the FLDS practices plural marriage. Um, Is there any reason to believe that children of polygamous marriages were more faithful than other children? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I think just like families now, there's all sorts of different elements that influence um, how a child grows. Um, so they may have, and it, yeah, it just, uh, there may have been a faithful a different context of faithful environment, but again, it's, I think a lot has to do with personal decision. Okay? okay. Thank you very much.